Hi, this is Monica Lopez. Before we get to our podcast, I want to let you know that Making Contact is supported mostly by our listeners. We're a nonprofit shop with a small yet mighty team. In other words, a little goes a long way for us, and a little more goes a lot longer. So if you can, please go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. On the next Making Contact. Respond. The system does not respond to us when we politely ask them. But we learned last year, as we were walking over that line, that they hear us when we take that kind of action. Everything that we have done, we have done everything in our power. We've worked through their system. We've changed their laws. We've put, quote, unquote, the best forestry laws in the country on the books. We've done everything we can to enforce them. And they still take every tree in the forest. So that's why we're going to make this statement in the only way that they seem to be able to hear. As threats to the environment persist across the world, law and police practices continue to protect corporate interests taking aim at frontline activists who defend the land and natural resources. This strategy of criminalizing dissent took an ugly turn in 1990 in Oakland, California, when environmental activists Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney were car-bombed. Despite receiving death threats, the pair was instantly arrested by the FBI and Oakland police for bombing themselves. Today we'll hear the documentary, Who Bombed Judy Berry? Produced by Daryl Cherney, Elise Cates, Sheila Laffey, Bill and Lori Benenson, and directed by Mary Liz Thompson, the film explores Judy Berry's bold activism to save the Redwoods in the face of corporate greed and the violent measures taken to silence the environmental movement. Judy Barry is a wobbly organizer. A mother Jones at the Georgia Pacific Mill. She fought for the sawmill workers, hit by that PCB spill. T. Marshall Hans calling GP shots from Atlanta. A car bomb explosion sends two members of the Earth First group to the hospital. And the question tonight is, will the injured environmentalists face criminal charges? Good evening, everyone. This pipe bomb went off at a busy Oakland intersection, and the man and woman who were heard had planned to lead a summer of militant protest against logging practices in Northern California. The unofficial word is the two environmentalists injured when a bomb went off in their car just before noon are suspects and not just victims. The unconfirmed report says Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney will be charged with possession and transportation of explosives. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth here in this matter before us? Yes, I do. Thank you. State your name for the record, ma'am. Judy Berry. 
Dennis Cunningham. You're here today reclining on a couch in a private room instead of testifying on a witness stand. Um, why is that? I have terminal cancer and um, weak and getting weaker. Judy Berry was a key organizer with the radical environmental group called Earth First. And on May 24, 1990, Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney were nearly killed when a bomb exploded in Berry's car. It's believed that because of her activism, she was targeted by the government to halt her advocacy and protection of the wilderness and actions against the timber industry. In 1997, Judy Berry gave a deposition for a civil rights lawsuit against the FBI and Oakland police. Here she is speaking with attorney Dennis Cunningham about the bombing and the incidents that preceded it. Said you were bombed. What exactly happened? I was driving my car and I was um, driving down the street and I was following somebody. At a certain point, I think she was getting ready to make a turn and I was trying to follow her and realized I wasn't going right and I quickly hit the brake. And at the time when I hit the brake, um, there was a very huge explosion and I felt it rip through me. The explosion being so powerful that the sound itself had a force. I was amazed. I mean, I've, I've been in Vietnam, I've seen bombed, bombed vehicles, and I was amazed. When I first looked at that car, I couldn't see a driver. What happened next that you can recall? The next thing I remember, I, the car was stopped and there were people around and I was in incredible pain that I had never felt before. I knew my back was broken. My legs both were immobile at the time. I knew that my body was ruined. I knew that I was paralyzed. I felt that I was dying. The driver was identified as 40-year-old Judy Berry, also of Ukiah. Both victims are members of the environmental group Earth First. Both were taken to nearby Highland Hospital. The passenger was taken out first. Was someone in the car with you when the explosion occurred? Yes, Daryl Turney was riding in the passenger seat. Now out in the redwood forest grows Trees two thousand years of age And the owls they hunt, the bears they home The salmon swim and the rivers rage I heard a crack And then my whole head started to ring Then I heard somebody scream out It's a bomb, there was a bomb And then it all made sense that someone had tried to kill us do you remember Daryl saying anything to you while you were still in the car? I remember him saying that he loved me, and I remember him saying that I was going to live. Forget all the mayhem and utter destruction that's tearing my planet in two. And I want to spend the end of the world with What's the next thing you remember after being taken out of the car? Um, I remember being placed on a gurney, which again was another incredible pain. I remember being put in an ambulance. I remember going to the hospital in the ambulance. I remember repeating that my back was broken. I remember a nurse hugging me and telling me that they were going to put me unconscious. And I remember begging them to let me die. And that's the last thing I remember before I lost consciousness. And what's the next thing that you remember that happened when you woke up? I remember waking up and finding myself completely immobile and my leg up in a traction device. 
And I remember that there were two uniformed police standing next to me as soon as I opened my eyes. Did the two uniformed officers speak to you? Yes. They told me that I was under arrest and they said they wanted to, for transporting explosives, I guess. And what was your response at that time? I said I wouldn't talk to them without a lawyer. Is the police case falling apart? I wish I could see the police case. Uh, my, my feeling is because they didn't file charges today, it certainly is not a strong case. The Oakland Police Department still considers them as suspects in this case, and we have no indication at this point to indicate otherwise. Uh, we have no information to indicate uh, anybody else is involved, and we're still uh, looking at it, uh, them as suspects in the case. I think that they're looking at entirely the wrong places. And I, I don't think that I don't think that they're doing a thorough investigation. I think that the police tactics need to be investigated here. The real fundamental questions are remaining unasked. You know, whose interest is this in to 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 have these two people bombed? And Daddy, won't you take me down by Mendocino to the Albion River where paradise lay? Judy Berry. We had a very specific and, and enforced nonviolence code, and this was partially a result of the violence that we experienced leading up to Redwood Summer. Increasingly, as we had gotten larger and more effective, violence had been used to, to keep us down on the front lines, and often with the cooperation or at least benign neglect of the local police. So, um, you know, people had been, one woman was punched and knocked unconscious and had her nose broken and they wouldn't arrest and uh, somebody wielded a line, live chainsaw into a crowd and decked somebody and they wouldn't arrest. The most extreme example was, once again, me, Daryl, and uh, another friend of ours, Pam, were um, driving to a well-publicized rally and our car was rear-ended, it was rammed, Karen Silkwood style, by a logging truck that we had just blockaded less than 24 hours earlier. And that was in 1989. That was one year before Redwood Summer. And those were some of the things that made us think that we needed to call for these kinds of very public and very nonviolent tactics in order to counter that kind of thing. But the more that, as we put out this call, the more effective that we got, the more notorious we got, the more it seemed like people were really going to come to Redwood Summer, the more the ante kind of got, got whipped up. And really, there was a, a lynch mob atmosphere was whipped up in this area before Redwood Summer. And um, one of the things that they did was, um, you know, we began to get increasingly frightening death threats. The scariest one that I received, we got, well, some of them phone, but particularly written death threats. The scariest one that I received was a photograph of me from the newspaper with a rifle scope and crosshairs drawn over my face. And when I went to the Mendocino Sheriff and I asked them to help investigate the death threats, they said, and I quote, we don't have the manpower to investigate. If you turn up dead, then we'll investigate. So I went to the Board of Supervisors and I showed the death threats to them and complained about the Sheriff's lack of action. And one of the Board of Supervisors members said, you brought it on yourself, Judy. The lawsuit filed by Judy and Daryl claimed false arrest and unlawful search and the violation of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It also claimed a politically motivated conspiracy in violation of the First Amendment, which attempted to suppress their free speech by discrediting them. Here's Judy Berry describing the nefarious actions of law enforcement while investigating the car bombing. I thought the FBI was evil before all this stuff happened, but my cynicism has had a very hard time keeping up with reality in this case. Because <laughs> this one even 
didn't shock me. What we discovered in the course of the depositions is that one month before the bomb went off on my, in my car on May 24, 1990, almost exactly a month to the date, the FBI conducted a bomb school, their words, in Eureka, California, up in the Redwood region. And what they did at bomb school was they blew up cars with pipe bombs and practiced responding. And the teacher of bomb school was Special Agent Frank Doyle, the very same one who took over the scene. And the students at bomb school included at least five, and we're trying to find out more, of the responding officers who worked under him picking up the debris. So when we asked Sergeant Hansen from the Oakland police, how could you say that this bomb was in the back seat, he said, well, if Frank Doyle was my teacher, I wasn't about to contradict him. So certainly he set up a line of authority with that. But then there's something else that they did. The other thing I need to say about bomb schools, the place where they held this bomb school, the place where they blew up these cars was on Louisiana Pacific land. And Louisiana Pacific, of course, being one of our principal adversaries. And um, uh, you know, we asked if Louisiana Pacific security was there. And well, yes, they would be there to secure their interests. So this alliance of LP and the FBI and this exercise of blowing up cars and practicing responding with the very, virtually what they did, the, it, Frank Doyle told the class of bomb school, he said um, that when people when people bomb each other, they hardly ever put the bomb inside the passenger compartment because it's allegedly so hard to break into a car, okay? Um, instead, he says, they strap it underneath the car or they put it in the engine. And so since one of the reasons that they say they knew that this was my bomb was because the, the bomb was inside the passenger compartment. And um, so if you think about what he's doing here, I, and I, you know, you can take your choice how to describe this. You can either be a conspiracy theorist or you can be a coincidence theorist. But one way or another, one month before the bombing, Frank Doyle told the people that people who, that this bomb scene, they actually created the same crime scene that they were about to respond to. They blew up three cars. We said, well, where were the bombs in the cars that they blew up? Two out of three were in the passenger compartment right after he finished telling people that people don't bomb each other in the passenger compartment. So um, at, what he's doing is he's created this bomb scene. He's created virtually the same crime scene that they're about to respond to. And he's told them that this crime scene is not consistent with the victim of a bombing. It's consistent with transporting a bomb. So um, in addition to setting up this line of authority, Frank Doyle also prejudiced people's response. So I'm not saying that bomb school means that they had prior knowledge of the bomb. We'll have to wait and see about that one. Um, but it certainly did those two things. It certainly prejudiced the respondents and it set up a line of authority. Never fear the worst, because if somebody kills themselves, just blame it on Earth first. <laughs> Dennis Cunningham and Judy Berry. You knew there was a determination pending with respect to whether the case would go ahead. Is that correct? I knew the question was whether or not Daryl and I knew the bomb was in the car. Based on where we've determined the location of the device to be, we believe they should have known it was there. Sources have told us police believe the bomb was being carried in a guitar case that belonged to Judy Berry. You know, their investigation, their whole thing was based on lies. I was terrified, and I was terrified not just because of the bombing. I was equally terrified that I would be framed for this bombing and spend 
my children's childhood in prison and not get to raise my children. I learned through this experience that extreme fear is a physical phenomenon and not just a mental phenomenon. I would shake uncontrollably and people would try to hold me and calm me down and have great difficulty doing so. I experienced complete sleeplessness. I could not sleep at all. I would be awake the entire night 100% of the time. It just felt like there was a hole in my stomach. I was so scared. I couldn't focus on, you know, I, I, it's like it, it, it consumed my consciousness, how petrified I was. Did you know at that time that the FBI was involved in the case? Absolutely. But even more, I learned that Richard Held was in charge of the San Francisco FBI. I didn't know who he was before that. And I knew that he was making statements in the newspapers about the case. We have to go where the evidence goes. As an investigative agency, we collect whatever evidence is available and take it to the U.S. Attorney's Office to determine if there's a basis for prosecution. Did you learn some alleged facts about Richard Held that you connected to the status of your own case? Yes. I was brought articles detailing Richard Held's career in the FBI, and I learned that he was a COINTELPRO operative under J. Edgar Hoover. The decline in Hoover's reputation began soon after his death in 1972, as the nation began to learn the full extent of his abusive power, his persecution of Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders, of feminists and the early environmentalists. J. Edgar Hoover described it's a way of they targeting uh, domestic radical groups that they think are, are a threat to the U.S. government. And these are his words, to expose, misdirect, isolate, and neutralize political groups that he didn't like. And that's really what's been done to Earth First. Wesley Swearinger. They used the term neutralize, but no one ever defined what neutralize meant. You know, someone might think, well, gee, why don't I just have one of my informants in another organization go out and shoot this guy and, you know, have him assassinated. That'll neutralize him for sure. And those things are what made me sure that when, despite my innocence, I could still spend my life in prison because I felt that this man had a track record. First of all, we'll talk about the letter, which seems to have changed the focus of the investigation. The three-page, single-spaced letter was mailed anonymously to the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. It claims responsibility for placing the bomb in Judy Berry's car. The letter begins, I built with these hands the bomb that I placed in the car of Judy Berry. The letter then goes on to threaten anyone participating in the upcoming Redwood Summer protest by saying, all those who would come to the forest and worship trees like gilded idols have been warned. They have seen the fate that awaits them. It's signed, The Lord's Avenger. It was scary to me, but it also made me feel exonerated. It made me feel like, well, gee, here's somebody out here confessing. They're not going to blame me for this bombing anymore. And yet they did. We are extremely hopeful, again, that it will cause the Oakland police and the FBI to look in the direction of finding the culprit and stop looking at Judy and Daryl. Had you seen the press coverage about the Lord's event? Yes. Late today, the FBI admitted it's taking the letter very seriously, although it is not ruled out that it's a prank. The letter does contain specific information 
with regard to the components of the two explosive devices. In addition to claiming responsibility for the car bomb, the letter writer also provided accurate details matching never disclosed information about a pipe bomb that partially detonated outside a Louisiana Pacific mill in Cloverdale on May 9th. One of the things being searched for in the second search was for typewriter exemplars to compare to the Lord's Avenger letter. So the theory was put forth through that search that I or my close associates had written the Lord's Avenger letter. What did you hear happen in court? I guess the FBI and the Oakland police together had asked for more time to find more evidence, although they still considered Daryl and I the only suspects, and the judge had granted them more time, and there was another court date set. And of course, officials speculate Earth First could have sent the letter to deflect attention from bombing victim Daryl Cherney. He appeared in court Tuesday after Oakland police arrested him for the bombing. But the district attorney refused to press charges. All we're doing is waiting until we get all of the evidence before us. In the meantime, Cherney is free on a $100,000 bond. He continues to say he is innocent. I believe there were three court dates in all. And on the third one, the district attorney declined to prosecute for lack of evidence. Criminal charges will not be filed against Earth First organizers Judy Barry and Daryl Cherney. Flying home from Montana after participating in the annual Earth First encampment, co-defendant Daryl Cherney learned he and Barry would not be charged with transporting the explosives. The district attorney declined today to go on camera to elaborate, but as always, Cherney had plenty to say. My opinion is, is that the DA didn't want to go down with the ship that the uh, FBI and the Oakland police were sinking in. Environmentalists are mourning the death of one of their most powerful leaders in Northern California, Judy Berry. She died at a Mendocino home of breast cancer. Those who knew her say she made a difference in their lives and in the environmental movement called Earth First. There was just a, a determination and a focus. Maybe some people might call it uh, almost obsession, uh, but it was definitely she was on the case. She cared, and out of that caring uh, was the source of her power. Cowboys. It weren't much to look at, but he knew where the best stuff was grown. That was a long time, no matter how hard I tried. can see when activists are attacked for their activism by the government, by the police, and by the national or federal police, you know, and particularly 
the FBI part is, you know, should be in bold relief for everyone in the country to understand at a time like this especially. False arrests, you know, false affidavits, and the smear campaign, the sham investigation. This case has these extreme facts that don't befall uh, uh, civil cases very often. They've come into court and they've engaged in the exact same smear tactics that they engaged in from the moment the bomb went off. And uh, we've even said that it's given rise to a new rule of evidence, which seems to be that smear say is completely admissible. Judy Barry called for all of our supporters to come here every day. They had a, a aura about them in the room. It was uh, very, very, uh, I don't know, very earthy, very loving, very nurturing. What the FBI has been doing instead of fighting terrorism is looking at activists and tampering with activists protected activities, and that's got to stop. And it's got to be the strongest message you can give, especially at this time, to uh, the people in California and around this country that terrorism by our law enforcement agencies can't be allowed no matter whether these people are wearing uniforms or in high positions or not. Being in democracy is not about voting once a year. It's about participating in government all the time. And so when the government, in particular the FBI, does you wrong, it's your responsibility as an American citizen to take them to task, to take them to court if necessary, and hold them accountable. The federal civil jury took 16 days to decide. Today, awarding Earth First supporters a stunning victory. jury today found that six of seven law enforcers themselves broke the law, violated civil rights, in essence, framing Cherney and Barry. Now, 12 years later, a jury has awarded Cherney and the late Judy Barry $4.4 million for illegal search and false arrest. I'm glad they didn't give up when they pursued it. And I hope other people that are scared and maybe this will give them the courage to face them. I feel a great relief. I feel a great sadness that Judy is not here to experience this victory, but then I also know that Judy Barry is here in a way. Her spirit has been in this courtroom for this entire time. Now let's give Judy Barry the last word. There is one thing that I want to say about this case, that this case is not about me, it's not about Daryl, and it's not about Earth First. It's about the right of all activists to work for social change without having to fear repression by the government's secret police. Now Judy Barry is a wobbly organizer. Mother Jones at the Georgia Pacific Mill She fought for the sawmill workers Hit by that PCB spill T. Marshall Hans calling GP shots from Atlanta Don Nelson sold him the Union long ago Now they weren't gonna have no wobbly Running their logging show They spewed out their hatred And they laid out their scam 
Jerry Philbrick called for violence Was no secret what they planned So I ask you now who bombed Judy Barry I know you're out there still Have you seen her broken body Or the spirit you can't kill to the film, Who Bombed Judy Berry, on Making Contact. Special thanks to producers Daryl Cherney, Elise Cates, Sheila Laffey, Bill and Lori Benenson, and director Mary Liz Thompson for use of the film. Check out our website, radioproject.org, to learn more about Judy Berry or the film. Also download past shows or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rutman, Producers Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and Salima Himarani. Associate Producer is Aisha Chowdhury. Audience Engagement and Web Coordinator Catherine Steyer. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.